Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where... Sound effect, sound effect. Ah, very nice. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. With me, as always, is my scintillating and far more professional co-host, William, why don't you introduce yourself? My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for The Rap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, no, I am not with you always. One time, not that long ago, you were with mm. Lon Harris. That's right. Uh, Lon Harris uh, stood in for you while you had laryngitis. Yeah, that's pretty bad. That's not, not a good... Uh, position to be in when you podcast no it's kind of like the one thing you need yeah yeah so the the voice was gone lon harris came in and we reviewed a couple films together it's my voice <clears throat> lon harris was very polite very kind oh, of him one to join uh, on short notice as well yeah uh he explained uh something very vital that uh red notice is not a film but a genre it kind of is. He's yeah. not wrong. He's not he's, wrong. He's sort of in, invented that concept. A particular so. particular breed of movie that feels like a movie, mm. but doesn't actually offer anything a movie offers. Basically, yeah, like, like it, ha- it it's has. It's got the, banter, but no jokes. The, the beats of a movie, adventure, it's, but no it's, thrills. It's got travel, yeah. but no exciting. No, no atmosphere. Set pieces. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like, uh, sex appeal, but no sex. You know. Yeah. All, it's, it's kind everything of, but nothing. It's, uh, it's, it manages to entertain while not giving you literally anything. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah. he used he used Red Notice as such a pure example of that yeah. that the genre is named after it. Yeah, and it, it was a wrong? pleasure to pleasure to talk to to Lon Harris about those things. But we're back. We're back. We had a long holiday uh, where uh, uh, we had a Thanksgiving. We had a. a Mega episode because we missed it. We had like nine movies last time. Yeah, it was a gigantic one, and uh, you know what? Not a lot opened over the weekend, so this Mm. is not going to be. I say this now; it's going to be a three-hour episode because I said this. (laughs) It's not going to be as intensive an episode of critically acclaimed as usual, but we will be talking about the new releases, Strange World. We'll be talking about the new. Uh, it's billed as a special, but it's an hour long, and we're gonna we're gonna count it. Uh, The Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Yeah, we we talked about Werewolf by Night. Which we is, feel like uh, we, we part, part of the, the part of the same series and released yeah. under the same imprimatur. So. We, we opened the door. It's a standalone, yeah. technically feature length installment of a feature film franchise. Mm-hmm. We're going to let it slide. Uh, the Korean War aviation drama Devotion, and uh, the new Hulu horror movie Nanny. 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 Uh, let's jump right in. Let's <clears> talk <throat> about a movie that is making headlines for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> a Strange World. Strange World. Uh, a bit of disclosure. Uh, the writer and co-director of Strange World was a classmate of my wife's. No kidding. Uh, I've, I've never met him. Uh, his What's name his is name? Queen Yuan is his name. Uh, okay. He also was one of like five or six credited screenwriters on Ryan Ra- the Last Dragon as well. Oh, okay, cool. So right. yeah, he's been, well, been do- doing work for Disney. And, yeah, I yeah, believe the official this... director on, uh, credited is Don Hall, yeah, uh, he, who he did was... Big Hero 6. Yeah, and and uh, he was credited as co-director. That is a new yeah. thing that they do in animation I would really love someone who works in animation to explain the difference between co-director as it is credited in animation mm. and a co-director that is credited in live action. Because yeah. in live action, if you're a co-director, like the Coen brothers or the mm. Daniels who did everything ever all at once, the implication is you do the same job. You are sharing the same job. Yeah. But in my, in my <clears throat> understanding that although co-director is a very important job in animation, it's not explicitly the same thing as being the movie's director. And I've been corrected. Yeah. When I refer to a quote co-director as someone who was a director right. on the film, it's not exactly the same job. I'm a little hazy on that, so I don't know exactly who to credit for what. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really need to do some research in that. I should have made a note of it before we started, but 
that's the thing. But uh, Don Hall mm-hmm. uh, was was credited co-director on Moana. Yeah. Also director of Big Hero Six. Yep. Uh, and also directed Ryan the Last Dragon. Yep. Uh, so yeah, here he is doing Strange World, which is the latest film in the Disney animated canon. This is yeah. uh, Disney is going through, I guess, a bit of a slump. This one wasn't as big a hit, uh, and you might compare it to a film like Atlantis or Treasure Planet. Those films also weren't big hits, yeah, or Black Cauldron. Yeah. Basically, it's an attempt to take the Disney animated uh, style, perhaps. Style, yeah. not even style, because a lot of those films have very different styles. Uh, Disney animation has baggage. Mm. Uh, there is a certain image people have in their heads of what a Disney animated film is. And when Disney breaks away from that general vibe, they're Mm. not always rewarded. And sometimes they suffer mightily. The way I put it uh, in the past was that uh, when it came to fairy tales Mm -hmm. based on like European folklore... Yeah, uh, or the, just general sort of the, fantasy folklore yeah, the, elements. The, yeah. the, the the princess movies, they yeah. kind of had those on lock, didn't they? They those, kind of those have the formula were, down. Um, Mostly they're good. Uh, yeah, you, you think of you know, films like Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella, which I know are from the 50s, but yeah, then okay. you think of more recent films like Frozen or even Tangled. Yeah, um, Sleeping Beauty, yeah, etc. Yeah, yeah, uh, those... Um, those films are all uh, you know, varying degrees of good, but uh, you know they're all successful and celebrated. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to uh, essentially trying to court uh, for, and I hate to use like marketing terms, but like a little boy audience. Yeah, they, they, there was uh, this general perception and sadly a lot mm. of kids industry, mm. whether it's uh, animation, toys, it's heavily television, gendered, whatever. Yeah. It's heavily gendered. It should not be, but it is. Mm. So, uh, uh, so a lot of things are basically like you'll go to a toy store and then there's the girls section and it's yeah. pink. And you'll see all the Barbie stuff there. Mm. And it's generally considered, like, if you're a boy, you shouldn't want anything from the girls' section. And that's all weird and fucked up and arbitrary. And it's it's still going on, which is is. really frustrating. It is. But, like, Disney, uh, you're right. Disney has often courted what they saw as the girls' demographic. Mm. And whenever they tried to make, like, a concerted effort, this Mm. one's for the boys. Yeah, like, like. Treasure Planet, yeah, for instance. Mostly yeah. those movies tanked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, they, they couldn't. And you know why? Because they can't do it. They, they just don't really have. <laughs> I've, and I've seen a lot of those movies. I've seen Atlantis and I've seen Treasure Planet. Yeah. And they, I'm going to bat for Treasure Planet. I really like Treasure Planet. I like the design on Treasure Planet. I think it's not a well-told story, even I though think, it's, it's Robert Louis Stevenson. It's the Treasure yeah. Island story. But, I think uh, they're ahead of their time in yeah. terms of steampunk and anthro. And I think the central relationship between the protagonist and his father figure, Long John Silver, turns out mm. to be a villain, is as dramatic and nuanced as any relationship yeah, I can yeah, think I, of in a Disney animated I, film. I, f- I feel like it doesn't so I think, have I think it's got a, a good core. It doesn't have a good spirit of adventure, is my point. It doesn't really? feel like reading Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm. Uh, and I like it a lot. I feel like they're just not. And then, uh, then they tried going slapstick comedy for a little bit with films like Chicken Little and Meet the Robinsons and Bolt, and those films mm-hmm. also weren't hits. Yeah. Uh, so when they finally kind of fell back into what they were comfortable with, stuff like Frozen, they were hits again. Yeah. Now they're trying to branch out again, and I admire the effort. Uh, every time I admire the effort, even if it's not successful. An exception. Hmm. Wreck-It Ralph. Wreck-It Ralph is the exception. That, definitely that's the big the exception. One, that's that the one really that well. F- that, that's the one that feels like a Pixar movie. Like, it does feel like a really Pixar inno- movie. It's like really innovative and you yeah. know, has well, all these Pixar movies references. Tend, for a long time, Pixar movies tended to be about, it's the real world, but we're going to talk about this one part. Yeah. What are your toys doing when you're not looking? What are your cars doing mm-hmm. when you're not looking? What are uh, what if it's, what it's like to be a superhero in private? You know, that kind of thing. So... 
Wreck-It Ralph is, what are video game characters doing when you're not playing with them? Yeah. That's a very Pixar concept. Mm-hmm. It's not a Pixar movie, but it's a very Pixar yeah. concept. So I, I do like Wreck-It Ralph. And I even like Ralph Breaks the Internet. Not as much, but it's good. I actually and, prefer um, Ralph Breaks the Internet. I think right. it's a very clever film. Uh, so yeah, they, they've branched out here and there, but there, there's still this general, and what you just said, this uh, idea, a lot of baggage as to what's attached yeah. to what a Disney film is. And uh, now they've released this film called Strange World, which is another pulp adventure story they're trying mm. the treasure planet route again and um mm. and i guess audiences aren't responding to it but i can't speak to that uh, i can speak to the quality of the film and i think it's actually a, a bright breezy steampunk type of adventure uh yeah that's certainly fair uh, I think, the, the premise yeah. is uh a, a character named jaeger clay who's played by uh dennis quaid De- dennis quaid there you go dennis quaid dennis quaid uh they sing a song at the beginning he's uh an old uh he's talking about dennis quaid at the beginning Yes. No, they sing a song about Jaeger Clade. That's I the know, name of the but character. It's, it, it rhymes and he has a son named Searcher. Searcher is uh, not as big an adventurer as he is. Well, he's, he's, kind, of, he's is... kind of being dragged on all of these adventures, like not on like Johnny Quest. Yeah. You know, where it's like yeah. your dad is doing all this cool stuff and you're along for the ride. And it's not necessarily what you're into in more of a Venture Brothers kind of way. Mm. Uh, the one thing that's different, though, is that this isn't like, um, it's never set in the real world. Mm. It's like they're part of this like really isolated community in the middle of the mountains, and Jaeger isn't out globe trotting or whatever like Indiana Jones or Tomb Raider. Jaeger is trying to find a passage through the mountains outside of their village. Yeah, they live in this very they weirdly live in this really isolated, verdant valley. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's super an odd mm. setup, which I think is one of the reasons why it's a hard sell because it's a weird elevator pitch. But basically, mm. he's been trying to find a way out. His son's been with him for all this time. They have a big falling out when their son's a teenager. Yeah. And then we cut to 20 years later. Well, they have a big falling out where uh, Jaeger goes to explore rather than stay with his son. And he leaves. Yeah. He goes out into the mountains and gets lost. And his son, meanwhile, uh, ex- uh, uh, makes a discovery mm. on their adventures. He discovers a kind of plant that is a new and abundant form of energy. Yeah. And he takes it back like and elect- he cultivates it. berries and yeah, yeah. cultivates it in his farm. And in 20 years, he has completely revolutionized their hometown. Mm. It is now a proper steampunk town where people are on flying motorcycles and they have coffee machines and everything. It goes from uh, like 18th century to, late, to mid 20th century very quick mm. and also things fly. Yeah. Uh, but even though things are going really, really well, uh, uh, Searcher has uh, oh. a wife and a son mm. and they're very, very happy. His son is queer and his dad's really supportive of that and that's kind of nice. That It's actually like spoken of and it's not just a one scene thing it's actually they, like, they bring it up like time and time again yeah and... like it's not one of those things where it's so brief you mm. can cut it out of the film and you could cut it out of the film but it's not one cut like you'd, you'd yeah. have to like put some effort into it so uh, that's, a, that's a, a big step forward for Disney I'll give them a little bit of credit for yeah, that yeah. that there yeah that there's a, a and, and a, a biracial character as well biracial queer character is one of the yeah. main characters and uh, yeah the and it's all that cute, embarrassing teen stuff. It's, yeah. it's presented without any fanfare. It's just, oh, is this the boy you have a crush that, on? Yeah. Hey, that's you know, a little embarrassing. He's, he's he's really cool. You should go out with him. Dad, you're embarrassing me. I know, but you should go out with my son. It's like this is sweet. This is it's all sweet. very sweet. It's 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 very uh, very it's it's very pleasant. You like all the characers. Everyone in the movie is very very mm-hmm. likable. Uh, very quickly though, we find out that uh, after all this time. The uh, the plants that have been sustaining this new stabilized and uh, uh, sci-fi community uh, are rotten. Mm. They're poisonous. They they're, are they're, they're, they're dying out. They're dying out, 
and they're not as powerful as they used to be. And if they don't solve this problem, then their whole civilization is going to collapse. So they get into a big airship and they fly into the source of where they think the plants are. And they end up taking a giant tunnel into the center of the earth mm-hmm. where they find a very strange world. What, what kind of strange world? The strange world of the title. The, the strange world of the title is uh, everything is sort of like pink and purple. It's these yeah. unusual colors. Yeah. And there's all these really unusual faceless monsters sort of walking yeah. around. Uh, there's these things like elephant sized things that drop spores off their back and make the grass grow. Uh, there's little, little blobby things that sort of yeah. fly through the air and on these big rivers. Uh, and yeah. the, very, very pretty to look at uh, in, in a cute bit of self-awareness, this little uh, blue amoeba looking creature. It looks like the amoeba from amoeba records, like in the oh, logo that, of amoeba that, records. I, yeah. yeah. It, look, it looks like uh, Nickelodeon's gack. A little bit, yeah. It's yeah. Just, just this little blobby thing. I like the way they animate it because they anthropomorphize yeah. that little blob. Uh, yeah. They end up nicknaming it Splat. And it lands in the hands of one of a uh, supporting character at one point and says, oh, it's really cute. I want to market you. Uh, <laughs> it was a cute line of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, Jaeger Clade, now an older man with a long beard, mm. is, of course, down there. And they, yeah. they uh, team up and try to figure out this mystery. Mm. And uh, the animosity between father and son is still there. Uh, the relationship between grandfather and grandson uh, starts to form. Uh, and then uh, and then the, it turns uh, out that as too often happens uh, son and grandson are f- falling into patterns that the son wanted to avoid and ended yeah. up making into a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah, yeah. which so if, you, if you're young the, you will become your parents of, yeah that's, that's the bulk of the movie and like Tangled I'm wondering what the kid like the kids are probably like looking at their parents and saying wait a minute you're the villain like a little bit that was actually. a big part of Tangled where yeah. uh, the you know Mother Gothel was the main Gothel guy. yeah was like was the villain of the piece but she says like all these things that a kid would definitely recognize Mother knows best yeah, listen yeah. to your mother mm-hmm. oh that's not um, but <laughs> yeah Tangled is dynamite T- Tangled is great um, and uh, Strange World is likable I don't know if I call it great it's, but uh, what I, I think is I think there's two movies here. Mm-hmm. One is the family interplay. And some of that's a little familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a falling out with my dad because he wanted me to follow him into the family line of work and I wanted something else. Yeah, That's been done a billion times. It's still relevant, but mm-hmm. it's also familiar territory. And I think even kids might find it somewhat familiar. Uh, and But the thing is, is that all of the performances and the animated uh, animated performances as well as the voice performances... Very, very convincing. Mm. Everyone's really good in it. Like, Jake Gyllenhaal is a really good lead here. Dennis Quaid is playing the Dennis Quaid role from, like, the 80s. Like, this is totally that type of character he would have played <laughs> in the 80s. So, there was a time in the 80s, if you don't recall, where Dennis Quaid was the sci-fi hero du jour. Like, he was mm. in uh, Enemy Mine. Interspace. Interspace, yeah. Dreamscape. He was just, like, the Hal Jordan of my generation. Like, he was just the perfect sci-fi lead. Him and Kurt Russell just perfect um they started doing other stuff i always like dennis quaid um and he's really really good in this but um yeah all the interplay it's it's nice i like that there is a lot of discussion about not just you know you want to be have a different job but that you have a different worldview there's a cute Hmm. scene where in order to just sort of stop bickering and bond they agree to play a card game that uh, the grandson really really likes oh it's it's like Carcassonne. It's like massively complicated. Yeah, it's this really super complicated card game. If you've ever played Carcassonne, that's a that's a good example. Um, and they want to play with it the way that they always played with games, where there is okay, 
Who's a monster that we need to fight? Yeah, it's how like do du- we Dungeons win? and Dragons kind yeah. of a thing. And, but like, the thing is that the kid is like the kid's actually a little bit more enlightened than that, and his favorite game is not a game about killing monsters. His game is about equilibrium. It is about long-term sustainability. It's basically like, okay, there's a monster. How do you live with it? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you, how do you make that work? That's a more positive thing. So he's actually the the kids are all right. The parents have a lot more growing up to do, and I think that's a really good message for any family film. Mm-hmm. Um, the other movie is this big sci-fi spectacular where they're trying to solve this mystery about why these plants are falling apart, um, and. I kind of saw where it was going a little early. Like I yeah. kind of guessed where I, it was. I, I think adults I, are going to be a, a little ahead of it. I, I complete. There's yeah. there's a, a bit of a twist at the end, and yeah, if, if you've read certain science fiction stories, you'll know what exactly yeah. what the twist is going to be. Yeah, uh, and that and that's fine because it I is. think that's a fun science fiction concept. I agree. Uh, uh, the, it's it might be predictable, but you know, it's, I think it's, it's one I don't see a lot. I think it's going to be uh, predictable to adults. Maybe I so. think people who are familiar with enough with sci-fi mm-hmm. will go. Oh, I see where we're doing here. Yeah, it's not yeah. a bad place to go, but it's a little predictable considering it's a relatively straightforward story. I think kids aren't necessarily going to mm-hmm. get it. And I think the actual reveal of what is properly going on, there's yeah. actually like, okay, so here's like the, the actual the, problem the, the we na- have to the solve. The nature of the plants. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's cool. It is a cool. Great the... sense of scale, like really nice. It's, it, 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 it sells great. Mm-hmm. Raises a lot of questions they don't answer. I kind of wish they had a little bit. Uh, you know what? I, I'm I'm glad it was left as a bit a bit of a mystery. I, I suppose the, 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 the world the world we're on is like a bigger enigma than we thought. And in fact, a yeah. lot of uh, the the scenes where they're going through the strange world and they're yeah. sort of like cutting through the these grasses that are kind of also alive and there's all these like ineffable creatures and we don't really know what they are for very brief flashing moments. Yeah, uh, gave me a. Uh, like images of a fantastic planet, sure. which is uh, one of the, I think one of the better science fiction movies ever made really. Uh, yeah. Uh, in that it, it's one of the only it's, science fiction films you can see where everything feels truly alien. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like this is just a stand in for something that we know. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it's, it's, it's not we don't, like, we don't go to an alien planet and Oh, it's New Zealand. Right. But with, like, or, but with like glowy plants, like an avatar. Or, or like, it's oh. over, overwhelmed by, you know, very recognizable machines where everything yeah. feels incredibly strange. All the life forms are up to something you yeah. can't understand or predict. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just all very eerie. And I feel like that was like kind of the eeriness they were going for in this mm-hmm. movie because it's a Disney animated film. All everything sandpapered to a fine finish. <laughs> that's and that's an issue. Yeah. That's, a, that's a problem with the movie. I think, I think I, I like it. I genuinely like it. I think if I was a kid, I would have liked it more. I think kids are going to really enjoy it. I think it's a movie that sadly is going to do better on home video mm. because kids, even though the spectacle will be yeah. diminished a little bit, kids are going to be able to really enjoy living in that world, experiencing that world, and just kind of enjoying the vibe of it because the movie isn't very plot centric. To yeah, the extent there's, there's that there's a I, lot, of, lot of talk between the three generations, yeah. and uh, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I think it's a little harder of a sell as a movie because it's not a good elevator pitch. Mm. It's not like oh, I have to go see this thing about blank. It's like mm. okay, well, I have to set up the world, I have to set up the characters, I have to continue this concept, and it's kind of vague until we reveal more about it later. It's just not an easy blockbuster well, it's, logline, yeah, but it's it's a really enjoyable watch. It, it has. Uh, and again, this this might be just sort of the anchor of the brand. You know, Disney yeah. likes to sell itself as itself. The studio is the auteur, and yeah. 
as such, this isn't going to resemble any of the usual stuff. It's not going to have the cute animal sidekick. It's not going to have the rousing song in the middle. It's not a musical. Uh, It's not going to have... It doesn't even really have one central character. It's kind of more of an ensemble piece. It's a multi-generational piece. And it's not even like Big Hero 6 where it's about a team, but still the focus is on the kid whose brother died. Yeah. And then he takes his brother's robot and he turns into a superhero. Again, simple, clean Mm. pitch. We don't really have that here. It's a little, it's a little unwieldy, honestly, mm. in some regards. But when you're watching it, it feels perfectly natural. Yeah, it 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 doesn't feel. I feel like there was an ambition at some point along the way that was taken out of this. That they were mm. going to try to make it look a lot stranger. That, I think that that's it, probably in, in true, yeah. going into the caves and the strange world mm. really was going to be a strange world and. They use some of the iconography of, uh, like, vintage comics. Yes. I mean, it's called Strange World. They use that font. Yeah. Uh, and they, they open with, uh, they do open with a song, uh, yeah. just sort of narrating who these characters are. But it doesn't have that sort of pulpy tone to it either. Well, and that pulpy and, tone's uh, and tricky, that's, because that's an mm, old tone. It's an old tone. That's and, not a tone that necessarily and if, sells itself if to If anybody kids. could have done it, it would have been Disney. Probably. But I think it would have been... 70s Disney when they were doing yeah, when that, like, that all that stuff was more fresh in people's memories when that stuff yeah. was fresh in people's memories and they were yeah. also when Disney was actually like kind of suffering a little bit and they had yeah. to like recycle a lot and well, do, yeah, you're talking about like when they were creative. doing like the black hole and Tron yeah that like, kind that of stuff. late 70s early 80s yeah mm-hmm. but like again they struggle with this mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason as a company and I think it's because they want to sand down the edges and part of the appeal of Pulp Adventure uh-huh is that it's a little dangerous. Mm. It's uh, it's very freewheeling. Anything can happen. And, and, and it, should f- it should feel dangerous, yeah. too. And, and, this, does, does, and uh, this never feels dangerous. No. That's, that's, I think it's one of the issues with it, is that although it's perfectly amiable, it's so amiable it never really feels intensely dramatic. Mm. The, the drama is fine, but it never really feels like there's... There's a ton at stake, but in a very academic way. Oh, no, we're going to lose our power source. Like... It doesn't necessarily have that big, earth-shattering human connection that we have to it. Oh no, will someone have their heart broken or something like that? And it doesn't have that. It doesn't have mortal peril very often. Which, to be fair, is part of the movie's overarching theme. I think it's trying to take these pulp storylines and make find a way to make something very modern in its attitude uh-huh. in terms of we are very interested in taking pulp sensibilities but adding a contemporary generation z sort of positivity can we tell that kind of old-fashioned pulp story without resorting to many of the ugly cliches and tropes that define it yeah the answer is yes but i don't think they've cracked a way to make it marketable yeah so i this movie quite a bit it's not upper echelon disney i'm not even mm. sure i'm going to give it our c plus rating but um it's definitely if you know if, you, if all you've heard about it is that it's doing really badly at the box office which it is um mm. that's not the full story and it's yeah. not the movie's fault i think i think it's it might be the marketing department's fault it might just be that the theatrical environment is a very weird volatile place that is still kind of settling in I don't think it's ever going to yeah, be what it was before, but we're still trying to figure out exactly what people will pay to see right now. There's, uh, and it's less than it used to be. Uh, 
I, I wrote an article to this effect recently about, yeah. uh, and it was about a, a commentary on what uh, uh, Steven Spielberg had said recently about sort of yeah. how we need to get people back into theaters. And uh, there was a point in a counterpoint, and I wrote a third perspective where uh, one was here's here's how to let theaters go. The other one was here's, here's how to get theaters here's back. how to get theaters back. Yeah. And mine was we're already past that discussion. Yeah, things have already changed. Yeah, it's, it's too late. It's too late to prevent change. Yeah. It, it's yeah. the change has happened. It's in the past now. Yeah, it's always and the idea tell when you're in the middle yeah. exactly when the changeover happened. Mm-hmm. But you're right. No, I, we're I, in a, we're I in a tell, new paradigm. I can right tell now. you exactly when the change happened. It was COVID. Uh, that well, was, that was, I think COVID accelerated it. It was, already, it was, still it was already happening, but yeah. COVID is the deciding factor. That's what accelerated that's everything and actually caused caused it to finally fall. Some of us and are in a bit now, of denial about we're, it. Yeah, we're we're not going to be ever in a place again. Where theaters are attracting Avengers Endgame numbers. That's. Mm. Or if yeah. they are, it's going to be like one movie every yeah, once maybe in a while. One that's movie an event. Every, yeah. Like Top yeah. Gun is an event. Yeah. Avatar might be an event. Who can mm. say? But you're right. It's. it's the, the attitude towards theaters has shifted. Yeah. And theaters are no longer the primary delivery service for, mm. for films. And they haven't been for a long time, but we accepted that they were the primary initial delivery service. Yeah, and, they uh, come to theaters was... first. If you're interested in the movie, you go see it in Here, theaters. Here's, uh... And now the windows have, have narrowed, mm. so it's not as big a deal. If you miss it in theaters, it'll come out on streaming soon. Mm. A lot of movies are debuting on both simultaneously. A lot of the, movies uh... that are debuting straight to streaming are as good as anything that goes straight to theaters. No, and they're, so it's and less, they're also it's less like, of a motive to go out. No, they're also like bigger, like not, not that the Halloween series was ever like a, a juggernaut, but it's, you know, a known quantity. Yeah. And, and yeah, the last couple just went straight to Peacock. Well, uh, and contemporaneously in theaters. And you know what? They did fine. They did fine. They but, made, they made a decent amount of money in theaters as well as being on, yeah, on streaming simultaneously. Just, I, the, the hybrid method is what we have. Yeah. That that's, and that's, that's the world we're living in. Right yeah, that was the hybrid method. So, uh, fretting about opening box offices from the old world. Yeah, uh, and now we're like in... expensive movies probably need that mm. extra boost. Here's... I'm sure this wasn't cheap, mm. but again, I'm less concerned about the business angle and I'm more concerned yeah. about the movies. Uh, here, here was you know what? Here was the turning point, and I acknowledged this at the time. Uh, theaters shut down because of of COVID related lockdowns. Yeah, a lot of theaters closed. You couldn't go out in public. Uh, Trolls World Tour yes. animated film yeah. was going to be released in theaters and uh, it was delayed because of the lockdowns. Yeah. And it was supposed to come out like real fast. It was supposed to come out like yeah. a few weeks after the lockdowns came yeah. out. Yeah. And uh, the studio Universal. said, you know, Universal said, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to try something really novel here. We're going to release this directly to streaming and not put it in theaters. Mm-hmm. And we're going to release it at a premium price. You, you get to rent this and see this big studio picture at home. Uh, and you have to spend, I think it was thirty dollars, which was, was it, really that much? it was either twenty or it was thirty. I'm gonna look that up because I feel like that's a that's a key. Maybe, maybe Mulan was thirty, but uh, they they were expensive, yeah. Uh, as far as online rentals go, and without seeing a theater, the movie made a hundred thousand dollars, or a hundred excuse me, a hundred million dollars. Yeah, that was not a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, a hundred million dollars. That was that was the uh, VOD. Just VOD. Yeah. After that. That was a proven success, yeah. and other th- other films started doing that. Scoob 
did that, and that made mm -hmm. a good deal of money, just going yeah. straight to streaming. Uh, and then they started releasing bigger movies that way. Wonder yeah. Woman, Tenet, these big movies that had been delayed, mm -hmm. you know, these big, supposedly event films. Yeah, some of them were at a premium, mm -hmm. some of them were not. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were an attempt to sort of drive people to subscribe to a new service, yeah. so, uh, which, is a different, which is a different business model. Uh, after about a year of that, the industry changed irrevocably. And there was yeah. not going to be a moment where we're going to go back, all the theaters are going to reopen, and we're mm -hmm. going to continue a pace. People got used to the idea that you can see a new movie at home and the movie will be fine. And the studios, yeah. more importantly, the studios understood they could make money that way. Yeah. Uh, you put it very interestingly where um, the attitude for releasing something straight to a streaming service, a lot of audiences were thinking that was a bit of a gauche thing to do. That it was kind of dismissing that movie, brushing it off into a streaming service rather yeah. than giving it its due in the theater. Yeah, a lot of people but, view it uh, as like the straight-to-video exactly. mentality. It might be good, but it's probably not, or it would have gone to theaters, Given right? Given how much money and hype and, and uh, mm -hmm. to use their word, content, they were putting on these streaming services, uh, those streaming services became far more important to the studios yeah. than the theaters. So when they put it on their streaming service, that was actually, from their perspective, a bit of a compliment. Uh, so that's kind of what we're looking at here. The theatrical release and that it's not making money is simply a, a preview mm -hmm. for uh, you know what, what the public is getting interested in right now. And we'll have to rework what, what audiences think once they discover it on streaming, as it will inevitably go in a very short amount of time. This is going to be on streaming within, like, two months. Give or take, yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, we grew up in the world where a film was released in theaters, and you wouldn't see it on home video for a year. Yeah, <laughs> you see it a really long time. Long window. Like, you had to see it in a theater if you wanted to see it, because you didn't want to wait that long. Yeah. Like, if you wanted to see it, you had to see it now, because by the time... And then they would have to spend... One of the reasons why they shrunk that window was because you had to spend more money to remarket the movie on home video. Yeah. You had to put on ads on TV. You had to put on big standees in stores. Like, when it was a shorter window, when it was used to, they shortened it to nine months, then six months, then three months, and that was a standard for a while. Three months, you don't have to spend too much money. People remember the movie. It came out three months ago. You you spent the money. You just you <laughs> give you a couple of ads and you're good. Like, so yeah, they, we're, we're con these things are constantly in flux. Um... So, so yeah. Anyway, when people, so, when people talk about yeah. how you know X movie fails in mm -hmm. theaters, it's like, well, <laughs> let's let's like rethink how we're thinking of theaters and we, uh, what what yeah. that actually means for you know the film community at large. And you know what? Case in point, uh, there's there's a new MCU movie that went straight to streaming. Uh, sort of, it's billed as a special. I think it was originally going to be a movie. I think I heard that, and they decided to make it into. Uh, a Disney Plus hour-long special, and it's called the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. Yeah, I like that we're just doing Christmas stuff, like a proper holiday special <laughs> with with like Marvel Super. I think that's cute. I think it's a fun premise, and the Guardians of the Galaxy make a lot of sense to do it. Mm. Uh, this is the third official outing for the Guardians of the Galaxy, but they've appeared in a whole bunch of other stuff, including uh, Infinity War, mm -hmm. Endgame. They had a big part in Thor: Love and Thunder. Um, they're they're the MCU's lovable scamps. Yeah, I, you know? I, I uh, my issue with the Guardians of the Galaxy movies is I wish they were scampier. Yeah. Uh, they're uh, again that Disney thing. They feel like sanded down punk rock. They're pop punk. They're not. Yeah, uh, I agree. I they're, agree. They're, they're, they're not as they're, they're not, not as, as 
nasty or dangerous as I think yeah. they they feel like they are. I don't think they were ever dangerous. I do think the original Guardians of the Galaxy when it came out with its mm. uh, you know seventies rock soundtrack and mm. I, I think that alone gave it a different vibe from the other space opera stuff. Because here's the thing. When it comes to space opera storylines, and we're talking about sci-fi stories that take place on uh, in different worlds, different planets, uh-huh. big grand adventure, large sweeping drama, uh, Americans have been really hesitant to accept that from anything that isn't Star Wars and Star Trek. Yeah. And I think Star Trek would probably reject... I think a lot of Trekkies would reject the, the, the moniker of space opera. Yeah. I think there are times they're, where it not, fits, and there's a lot of times where it doesn't. Not, not as much of a like a, an adventure yeah. series. There are definitely Star Trek shows and movies where that does fit, and there's a lot where it doesn't. But in any case, Americans seem to be very eager to accept those two franchises. Mm. And almost any other attempt to do something in the space opera realm gets rejected out of hand. Yeah. And I've never quite understood that. I always felt weirdly hypocritical for me. Like, you want to even give it a chance? I was I told the story before, but I was at a um, I was at a movie theater um, years ago, and there was a preview with a whole bunch of robots and sci-fi stuff. And I remember hearing people behind me going, "Oh, this is the new Star Wars. This is really cool." Mm. And then it turned out it was a trailer for the live-action remake of Ghost in the Shell. Okay. Which not a good movie, but the trailer had some it, cool stuff in it. It's some fun visuals in that. Yeah, movie. sure. And when people saw that it wasn't Star Wars, you could feel the air being let out of the room. Oh man, they're like. Oh, yeah. well, now I don't care anymore. And I'm like, really? You were into it a second ago. What happened? So the Guardians of the Galaxy was able to, with a more, even more adolescent quality in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. with a slightly more of a of a personality. James Gunn at least has a stamp that he puts on it. You could say yeah. it's, a, it's not unlike Taika Waititi or Joss Whedon, but he has a stamp. That that was able to take hold and people were able to really embrace space opera all of a sudden, mm. I think was not insignificant. Okay. So I think people really like these characters. And, you know, I do too. All right. I think most of them are really, really fun. I think um, some of them have gotten a little less distinct. There was this whole thing where when we introduced to Drax, the Destroyer, uh, played by Dave Bautista, who's become a really good actor, by the way. <laughs> like, just in general. Like, I, he's just mm. good and stuff. Um, I, it, it's going to take a I, uh, I still haven't forgiven him for my spy, but okay. Uh, but that's come on, <laughs> let's let 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 it go. Okay, let it go. Anyway, uh, he uh, uh, his character was introduced, and one of the defining elements of the character was that they didn't have metaphor or allegory. Everything was very literal in his yeah. culture. So anytime you used any sort of expression that couldn't be taken completely literally, he got deeply confused. We let that go after a while, and that's not they, a they, thing they anymore. They stopped writing that gag. Because yeah. it's the same joke over and over again, and it usually stops the scene dead. Mm. We've done a few things like that. However, for the most part, they've been pretty consistent. They've got a fun dynamic. It's a good cast. And you can kind of just let them do anything, and they're reasonably I, entertaining uh, doing it. So the fact that they're I, not saving the world, but they're just, what are the Guardians of the Galaxy doing for Christmas this year? I'm probably a little bit more interested in seeing that than I am, I don't know, what are the Eternals doing for Christmas this year? <laughs> I'm a little bit more interested well, in what the Guardians of the Galaxy are doing, because that sounds would, like there's going to be a weird adventure. I would love to hear a conversation <laughs> about how the Eternals actually, like, hung out with Christ. <laughs> Christ oh, yeah. would have hated that tree. Christmas, yes. 
He's look, Christ. We we met Yeshua. He never would have seen a fir tree before. He doesn't yeah. know about any of this stuff. Yeah, it was, it's, and it's really gaudy for his taste. Yeah. He, was, <laughs> he was a beige kind of. <laughs> he liked earth tones. Lots of earth tones. I wasn't uh, into it either. But who am I to judge? <laughs> uh, my issue with the Guardians of the Galaxy is it's it's a bunch of. Remember like, when we used our matter transformer to turn all those loaves into fishes? <laughs> He took all the credit for that. He never gave us any credit See, for that. That would have been fucking great. <laughs> the Eternals Christmas where they're just reminiscing hanging out with Christ. Uh, anyway, that's his maybe. Because <laughs> they would have been there. They would have yeah, been there. No, that's, you're not wrong. It's funny. <laughs> oh, Pilot. Pff, yeah, I remember him. What, what a dick. What a dick. <laughs> he could have he fixed it. He yeah. didn't do it. Uh Anyway, but it was very my, clean. Uh, Literally washed his hands. My uh, my issue with the Guardians of the Galaxy is like they're they're wacky on paper, but I yeah. I don't feel like a lot of anarchic energy. And I also uh, and this might just be a personal issue of mine, but I, I don't get a good sense of them as a, a team, like how they feel about one another. Mm, uh, when I like they're dynamic. Yeah, like yeah. when I watch uh, like uh, usually spa- these space opera things where it's look at Star Trek. It's a crew on a ship, and yeah. I understand how these characters interact and what they're in charge of. You know that when uh, Jordy LaForge is in a room with Data, he's going to have this kind of conversation. Yeah, but yeah. he's in a, in a room with Picard, he'll have a different conversation. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, one of the characters doesn't speak. He only says, "I am Groot," and uh, yes. they, they kind of, so he's like, and he's a tree. Yeah, he's <laughs> so, a tree. But you know what? And, Alien and unusual. Alien and unusual. Like credit uh, yeah. for that. Oftentimes, stories that in space operas mm. are afraid to go as mm. non-anamorphic as that. Yeah, I, I wish they'd made the character more off-putting. You're kind of like mm. a, a not pleasant like to a, look at. More like an uh, ent. Yeah, there you uh, go. Like kind of, kind of mossy mm. and unpleasant. Um, uh, I, I don't know. Everybody seems to think that Rocket Raccoon is really funny. I think he's just grating and unfunny. Right. Uh, he has a weird obsession with collecting prosthetic limbs, which is never explained and is not ever funny. Uh, the uh, anyway, not, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I can't really, I can't really contend with that. Yeah, yeah it's a weird, it's a weird joke. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend. Uh, so yeah, I, I get an idea of who they are as people, but not who they are as a team or why they would be hanging out together. Yeah, you know, why do we? Why do they care? I don't get that from the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, uh, I un- but from what I understand, a lot of people do like the team and like all- yeah. seeing all those characters together. Uh, there's, um, it feels manufactured to me, but there is a warmth between the characters. They mm. even though they seem com- constantly annoyed, they kind of like each other at the end of the day. I, I, I got the impression. Mm. I think sometimes they sell this better than others. They're the only people who would hang out with them. <laughs> like everybody else hates them. No too one, much. no one else would willingly hang mm. out with them very much. And the only person who did was Thor, and even they thought it was kind of sad. Yeah, <laughs> like, Thor, you're. I hope you're better than this. <laughs> Please be better than this. You're a fucking god, <laughs> and you're and somehow you're weighing us down. Yeah. We suck. Like. Uh, what it could use, and, and I hate to use this because this is a very caustic, annoying show, but I think the characters need to be more caustic and annoying along the lines of something like Married with Children. These characters mm. who self-hating. clearly really hate each other, but are st- kind of stuck together out of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, the premise of the special is that um, uh, an alien band 
played by the band Old 97s. Rhett great, Miller appears. Great uh, band. I, yeah. Uh, and they have, a good, my, they have a fun Christmas song at the end where they have, they've written a song about how they don't understand the concept of Christmas, yeah, so they get but they think of, they got the gist of it. They got a lot of the details wrong. But yeah, uh, yeah. That's a good song. Uh, so Old 97s appears as, as space aliens, and they say, hey, we understand that back on Earth... There, you celebrate this oblique local holiday, and it's called Christmas. And we don't understand about anything about Christmas, but we understand you're feeling sentimental about life back on Earth. Uh, yeah. Peter Quill is Star, a little depressed Star-Lord, at the beginning yeah, of the episode. Is, is, yeah. He's a little depressed. He's a human. He was kidnapped from Earth when he was a boy. Now he's been hanging out with aliens his whole life. Hmm. And uh, he doesn't get to celebrate Christmas. Yeah. Like, it's something he remembers from childhood. Yeah. Uh, two of his friends, the two space aliens, Drax the Destroyers, Dave uh-huh. Batista, and Mantis. Played by Palm uh, Clementif. Pa- Palm uh, Clementif. Uh, see that he's bummed out, and they say, well, we understand that gift-giving is part of this tradition that he's left behind on mm-hmm. Earth. So, let's go to Earth. Take him to Earth. <laughs> you could, if you could I just know. go. Well, I, think, I think the idea is they want to yeah. they want to surprise him. Yeah. So, they so, so they're going to so they, surprise him. They're going to get him something that they think he'd really like. Yeah, and their and, idea, uh, because they don't understand how Christmas works or how gift giving works or how kidnapping works, is they're going to get his biggest hero, his childhood hero. Well, that, that's another thing. They know what kidnapping is, but they don't. It's there, it's one of those things where like they're as intelligent as the scene needs them to be. That's true. I, I'll grant you this, but uh, in any case, they he has a childhood hero. He's talked about it in at least the first movie. He was a huge fan of Kevin Bacon before he got kidnapped and taken out to the into uh, the universe. He's a big fan specific, of Footloose, yeah, specifically and, the movie Footloose, right? Uh, and you know what? I like Kevin Bacon. Kevin, Kevin Bacon is an excellent actor. He's I like an, Kevin Bacon a lot. A, actually, he's a great but, actor. He's very funny. He can play really really serious. He's role. incredibly game. He's been. Yeah. In, uh, he was in frankly one of the worst movies i saw this movie they them or they slash them oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah but it's not his fault that, no no yeah. he's 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 yeah. selling that part just fine no, uh, he's, he's good in everything yeah. kevin bacon he's just one of those guys it's like he may never mm. he only has a couple of like really standout like dramatic roles like it's a movie nobody talks about but murder in the first is really good oh yeah uh, with he, the, it was with christian slater christian slater and i think in early one of gary oldman's earlier roles uh, as well mm. uh where he plays a guy who was convicted of a pretty petty crime but wound up being trapped in alcatraz for a really long time mm-hmm. and uh they're trying to get him off of there and he's just being like tortured and abused by the system and he's right. really good in that movie so he was in death sentence oh, oh he, yeah. the, what was the um mm. he played a a a released sex offender in a movie. Um, it was called uh, the, I think it was called The Woodsman. The Woodsman. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that was a really good performance. Yeah, uh, I really like him as the villain in the the Christopher the Curtis Hansen movie, The River Wild. I didn't see The River Wild. River Wild's great. Yeah. It's it's the it's the one Meryl Streep action movie where she's an action <laughs> star. She plays a whitewater rafting expert who takes her family on a vacation, mm-hmm. and they are kidnapped by uh, criminals on the run, played by Kevin Bacon and John C. Riley. Back when he was a serious dramatic actor, and people didn't know him mostly from comedy. Aww. And so they're holding them at gunpoint and forcing them to do whitewater rafting so they can get away from the cops in like That's an unusual hilarious. way. It's a weird premise. Really works. It's a, it's a really good from, film. From the age of stuff like Cliffhanger. Uh, yeah, basically. It's um, Die Hard in a Raft. Right. Basically. It's, but you know what? Much better than it sounds. He's really great. Anyway, what is right. Kevin Bacon's great. Kevin Bacon's so great. And so Kevin gonna... Bacon appears in this special playing himself. Yeah. And he is... The cool thing is Drax and, and Mantis are going to kidnap him mm. and take him to see Peter Quill to like meet his idol 
for the holidays. As, as a Christmas gift. Yeah. Which involves a lot of them hanging out on Hollywood Boulevard. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of fish out of water humor. I yeah. I wish it had felt like a little bit more shameless. Like yeah. they just filmed it guerrilla style. Yeah, there's this like whole... that's the, that's the vibe they're going for, but it still feels too clean. No, it, it feels very very clean. I wish they'd done a little bit of it. There's it there's this whole bit where they they land on Earth. They know he's in Hollywood, and so they land in Hollywood and they go to the Hollywood Boulevard, which is nowhere near where they landed, but it's fine. It's a long walk. And uh, they, <laughs> they land up in Hollywood Hills and then they go down into yeah. Hollywood Boulevard, which is miles. It's, it's, a, it's a walk. They're not saying they can't be done, but it's mm. a walk. And uh, they they're, end they're up space at, aliens. It's fine. They, they're in, they're in Grauman's. They're in front of Grauman's Chinese, and uh, Grauman's Chinese. In addition to having you know the hands and footprints in the cement, there's a lot of people who dress up and take photographs with tourists, mm. and they'll dress, they dress up, up as superheroes. Often they'll, they'll dress up as superheroes. They'll dress up as big celebrities. They'll dress up as just famous people and characters. And you give them a couple of bucks, you take a picture with them. Mm. A lot of people make a little bit of money that way. Some people make a lot of money that way. And uh, Drax and Mantis, a lot of people recognize them because they're they're superheroes. They help save the world a couple of times. So people start handing them money and taking pictures with them. And there's a really cute bit where Mantis sees someone dressed as Captain America and thinks he's alive again and jumps. Oh, and, oh that's right. Thanks. Oh, hey, it's the real Captain because she's met yeah. the real Captain America. Yeah. And so now, so now after like a day again, of this, they if, have a if, huge wad of money. If they had done that, like like Borat guerrilla style, that would have been great. That would have been fun. So they have a huge wad of money, but they don't know where Kevin Bacon is. They wind up in a gay club for a while and drink a little bit. I think it's Bordner's. I think it's a real club. I think you're right. uh, In Hollywood. But eventually they find a map to the stars. They find Kevin Bacon's house. Mm. They storm Kevin Bacon's house. And there's a couple of shots where it's like legitimately intimidating. Where like Mantis is like climbing the walls and hissing. (laughs) Like I didn't know she did that. It's kind of uh, dark. Kevin Bacon is in his house, by the way. Uh, cute shout out. They, he's watching Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Yes, I'm sure he's. He uh, and and he, uh, he because it's public domain. It is public domain. <laughs> and he he ends up running from his house, but they kidnap him anyway. One of uh, Mantis has a superpower. Yeah. Who can uh, she can alter people's minds? She touches them and like hypnotizes them Jedi style. Yeah. So he just says, uh, "You will come with us, and I'll come with." No, it's like them. not even you want it. You want to. You want now to we, come with us, like, and then he, all of a sudden he's very game to go with them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then it, they take him back and there's a bit of drama about like, was, mm. you know, whatever. And then there's, there's musical numbers and gift giving and mm. it's cute. It's, mm. it's a perfectly it's... affable Christmas special featuring characters you like. I appreciate that ostensibly this is the Star Wars holiday special. If okay. you think about it, uh, it's basically, okay, here are all these superhero characters you like. Well, we got to get someone someplace in time for the holiday. Mm. We have a couple of side quests. There's a instead of going to the cantina, we go to the gay bar in Hollywood. We do a couple mm. of like kind of just pointless digressions with minor characters. Yeah, and at the end, there's, there's a big there's a big musical number. There should have been more scenes of Peter Quill back mm. on the alien world, just watching TV. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> that would have been really. I would have liked that a lot. There's even an animated sequence, not unlike this Star Wars. Oh uh, yeah, just do some. So uh, I, I think it's rotoscope. No, it's it's it's, it's like meant, it's like Bocce style. It's meant to look rotoscope, but it's I think meant it's meant to look like Bocce yeah, style. Yeah, I wish they'd gone full Rankin Bass with it. But, would have been nice. well if yeah. the, the whole special had been that way. It might have been maybe nice, it would have been fun. But um, but and again, I think it might have been better if that was more overt i think there was a lot more humor with that uh but honestly it's cute there's enough like cute moments in it that i like that it's short because it's not like it it doesn't sustain much it's a very it it feels like a lot of the bits in the middle 
feel like when they used to do like interstitials between segments on television, uh-huh. where it'd be like, okay, uh, Harry, it's, a, it's like a Elvira's holiday special, and she'd be out in the park asking people questions about Halloween. Yeah. Okay, so here's the deal: we couldn't get the big stars, but we did get Drax and Mantis. So they're on Hollywood <laughs> Boulevard it's it's doing only bits. Two, two of them, and we don't get yeah. to see the rest. Like, yeah, we and then we're gonna we have the, one the celebrity get, and he looks like he doesn't want to be here, and then, and. and <laughs> And this is how how sort of like out, out of the loop I felt because they're yeah. talking about oh and he really said Mrs. Gamora. It's like why isn't Gamora there? And actually, it actually took me like three scenes to remember that she had died in a previous. No, movie. Brought it brought back though because she was back in Thor: Love. Remember because Gamora died, mm. but when Thanos came from another reality, like he jumped ahead in the future, uh-huh. like oh we killed Thanos, but then Thanos shows up again at the end, and that's a Thanos from another reality. He brought a new another version of Gamora with him. That's oh, did the, he? So oh. there is a Gamora in this reality, and Gamora was in Thor: Love and Thunder. We did see her there. Did we? I think so. I thought she was. She, she just oh, maybe died. she wasn't. No, she didn't die. Right. She is around, but I think she went on like a, a personal journey or whatever, and we haven't gotten oh, back right. to it. No, I don't think she's dead. <laughs> it's kind of sad that we, we don't know that for no, sure. No, well, there's so many characters that you try and go. I could have sworn. Mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if Zoe Saldana's credited in Thor: Love and Thunder. All right, because this might just be me uh, projecting because it feels I'm like she should sure have been there. The, I'm pretty sure she's dead. I'm willing to and believe you. I just don't recall. Yeah, they, they haven't resurrected. They will. They'll resurrect. She's not resurrected. She is an alternate reality version that is there. We saw her fly away at the end of resurrected. Yeah. Functionally resurrected. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, no, you're right. She was not in uh, Thor: Love and Thunder. Yeah, Fair I enough. think so. All right. Um, I, eh, all right. Anyway. Oh, the uh, other thing we have. Hmm. Cosmo the dog. Co- Cosmo. Uh, there was a character in um, the first uh, Guardians of the Galaxy feature film. Yes. Played by Benicio del Toro. Yes. Uh, and he's the collector. The collector is a, a Marvel, very different from the comics, but yeah, mm-hmm. a Marvel character. And yeah, that, that was his check. He collected very rare uh, artifacts. Mm. They turned him into a little bit more of a pack rat in, in the movies. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, th- and he collected living beings. And mm. one of the things he collected was, uh, was Laika. Yeah, uh, like, essentially yeah. the the Russian cosmonaut dog that they launched yeah. into space. There are actually a lot of Russian cosmonaut dogs. There's a whole uh, exhibit uh. devoted to those dogs at the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Here oh, that's cool. I haven't been there in a while. Um, so, like, Cosmo the dog is a dog in like a, an Earth space suit, and it's a very mm. cute image. And we saw Cosmo in Guardians 1. I don't think we saw Cosmo in Guardians 2. But here Cosmo is back. We find out Cosmo is telekinetic. And Cosmo now has a voice. He's got like a, like a, like Doug Mm. from uh, a uh, translator on its neck. uh, Like, like from the dog from Mm. Up. Uh, And uh, Cosmo is played by Oscar nominee Maria Bakalova. Yeah. uh, From, uh, from Borat. The second Borat Borat Subsequent movie film. Nice. Mm-hmm. I just like Cos- I, I, I like Cosmo. I think Cosmo's a cute idea for a character. <laughs> just, you know, one of the dressing cosmonaut dogs? Mm-hmm. Ended up in space, got super intelligent, yeah. superpowers, just hanging out. Love it. <laughs> That's a fun idea. Uh, yeah. I, I wish they had removed uh, Rocket Raccoon and just mm. just made him Howard the Duck. That's kind of like what they're trying to do anyway. He's kind of Howard the Duck. Yeah. I'm waiting for them to come back with Howard the Duck. I mean, yeah. come on. At least, you'd think at least She-Hulk would have had a thing. With Howard the Duck. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense, right? Like, bring Howard the Duck back, for God's sake. Well, what what rights does a duck man have on a human world? That's yeah. a fair question. Yeah. Yeah, but they could do, even do a thing with, um... Because uh, the creator of Howard the Duck was uh, a bit of a maverick renegade when it came to, uh, like, property rights. Uh-oh. Like, because, you know, there's this whole thing when uh, uh, you, uh... 
there, I, I, I might be remembering this wrong, but uh, when you signed your checks at Marvel, uh-uh. there was a thing on the under the signature that was like, by signing this, you agree that any work you've done for Marvel is the property of Marvel. Of Marvel, yeah. He used to just cross that out and then <laughs> deposit the check. <laughs> so when the push came to shove and they started using it, I'm like, uh, no, you owe me some money. I never agreed to that. That's really funny. <laughs> So you could do something with like likeness well, rights or something yeah, like that. Good, with good for that guy. Yeah, uh, my, it, it, I agree with you. It's cute. It's harmless. It's a little yeah. puffball. It's, of a it's thing. an hour it's, long yeah. holiday special. I can only be yeah. so upset by by it being insubstantial. You know, uh, it's it's not the insubstantiality that bothers me. Oh, yeah? It's it just sort of uh, highlights an, an issue I have with a lot of James Gunn's work as a as an artist. Okay, uh, because I I have seen a lot of his work and I remember a lot of sort of the uh, early stuff that he just wrote stuff like the specials and Tromeo mm-hmm. and Juliet sure. and, and uh, even as something as recent as super, which came out in 2010, which he did. Direct. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, he, he did a film in there called slither as his first directorial effort. Yeah. Uh, and I know that he has that sort of uh, punk rock sensibility in him that he can be a little bit foul. And I, I miss that foulness. I want him to be a little bit dirtier and, mm. When he started making bigger budget movies, mm. I feel like he became way less interesting as a filmmaker. That's often I, the I, case. I, it really is. Some some filmmakers only work better on, on with bigger budgets. That's uh, true. Some people are good yeah, at it. Like I, 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 w- I have trouble picturing what kind of interesting story James Cameron would write given $100,000 and two weeks uh, to shoot. I'd kill to see what he'd do, though. I would like, love to I see that, and I bet see... it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I still would love to see it. Uh, and I feel like James Gunn is one of those filmmakers who works a lot better when he has very limited resources. And now that he's working sort of under this corporate umbrella and very well, he's being hired by like, well, he's running DC com- movies, yeah, now. DC movies. He's, just he's in like, charge of like literally now. co-in-charge of everything that's going to happen yeah. with DC superheroes. Now. So he, he's, he, uh, uh, apologies, but he sold out, man. Yeah, uh, no, that's. And and I yes. and, and I and I don't like sell out James Gunn. I don't like this yeah. this idea that he can play in this sort of very safe, vaguely distantly naughty popular milieu mm-hmm. uh, when he's actually capable of so much more filth. I, I want to see. Honestly, th- I want to see. A, I want to see James Gunn even at fifty. I want to see him with sure. dirt under his fingernails. Well, let, me, let me ask. Let me ask this question. Mm-hmm. Thank, hi, Luke. Uh, I'll feed you in a second, buddy. <laughs> Uh, let me let me but let me ask you this question mm. though because I know you would love yeah to see Marvel superhero movies with filth yeah. like stretching the confines of an R rating like really just mm. make it because that's gross kind of, and unappealing that, that's kind of the, I felt like that's what mm-hmm. like he was pointing towards with the first Guardians I of the Galaxy I understand that my question is it would have been a lot greater if like if the raccoon was just saying fuck all the time I'm, I'm not <laughs> I'm not even fighting you on that right. I'm, I again you and I might like that but. Let's be let's be reasonable uh-huh. here. He's doing work for hire. Yeah, he's not telling. I mean, he can try to make it as personal as he wants, but at some level, he's got parameters in which he is required to work. Much like someone who agrees to direct an episode of any long running TV show mm-hmm. has to make something that, at, even if you're doing something a little different, fits. Yeah, there's only so much you can do. Well, and, and I guess that's a points to a bigger problem with the kinds of stories you can tell in a series like that. I realize. I guess my point is is that that's not really a James Gunn problem. That's mm. just you being disappointed that his career has been sidetracked. Yeah, yeah and I, I think he's like... doing his best he can within this framework. I don't like everything mm. he does. I didn't. I wasn't even a big fan of Guardians of the Galaxy two, which yeah, I know I mean... a lot of people really liked, and I really 
was left weirdly cold by uh, his version of the Suicide Squad, which I yeah, thought had good bits in it, but ultimately, that, I, mean, I didn't like that, the original either. Yeah. But I guess his version's better. But it, it felt it, it felt weirdly bland for something that again was supposed to be the edgy one. Yeah, and that I, one is rated R. That I one actually think, has like yeah. violence in it, and, uh, and it an, still feels weirdly safe. There's stuff I like about it, but it's I yeah. Like they, I, they even you know. he invented in, in the Suicide Squad. There's a character in it that's like this giant revolting weasel man like it has, we didn't invent it, that. It, no he didn't invent that but there's this character in the movie mm-hmm. and it, it has like raggedy fur and like these eyes that point in opposite directions and yeah. it's constantly like twitching and making these weird noises distracting everybody yeah why is that as appealing it like it needs to be less appealing than that. it needs to be like even grosser than that somehow yeah it needs to be like wet and vomiting on people you know if you're gonna kill off these characters even in a gory way like if it's close-up of gore yeah get some real blood in there don't just do the yeah. cgi thing uh it's it, it's corporate approved punk and it, it just yeah. i i want it to be rougher all right well i'll tell you what uh i am going to Pause for a second, play a commercial if you're listening to this with commercials, while I feed this cat. Alright. Alright. Okay, the cat has been fed. (laughs) Welcome back. What do you want to talk about? We got two more movies to talk Mm. about. You saw one, I saw the other. You want to talk about Devotion or Nanny? Uh, Tell me about Devotion. Okay. Uh, Devotion is a new Korean war drama uh, from director J.D. Dillard. Uh, who broke onto the scene with a movie in 2016 that I really hope more people see. It's called Slight. It's spelled S-L-E-I-G-H-T. And Slight, I think, is uh, one of the better sort of independent, original, quasi-superhero indies that we've had Mm. uh, since the superhero boom. And it's about a guy who is, uh, he's a drug dealer, but what he really wants to be, he's doing that to pay the bills and take care of his little sister, um... He really wants to be a magician, and he's when he's not selling drugs, he is performing sleights of hand on the street and getting you know tips and things and building his craft. And over the course of the film, he gets in too deep with a bunch of uh, dangerous criminals, and he ends up having to use his magical skills and the things that he is developing to like. He's going really, really outside the box in order to develop like trickery mm-hmm. uh, to turn into a bit of a vigilante. It's really good. It's a solid drama with a cool superhero element to it. I wish more people had seen it. It kicks ass. Please see Slight. Uh, I didn't see the second film he did, Sweetheart, uh, but he's back with a new Korean War drama. This one stars Jonathan Majors as a real-life naval officer named Jesse Brown. And Jesse Brown was uh, one of the very few uh, uh, black aviators uh, Mm -hmm. in America in the 1940s. And he joined... uh, he joined up just late enough that by the time he was out of flight school, the war was over. Ah. So he had all of these skills and nothing to do with them. And there apparently, according to the movie, were a, quite a few aviators who signed up for what they called the big show and missed it. And now, several years later, the Korean War is just on the horizon and they're all very eager to finally put their skills to the test. There's no real questioning of the Korean War and sort of the politics of it. That's not what this movie is about. It's pretty rah-rah, actually. Mm. Like, the, the the implication is the people we're fighting over there are bad. Mm. And we must stop them. That's where the political discourse begins and ends. It's not about that. Frankly, I think that does maybe a little bit of a disservice. It makes it feel a little 
a little flat in terms of like the war backdrop, but what it's really about in its core is about the relationship between Jesse Brown and his wingman, Tom Hudner, who's played by Glenn Powell, who recently played Hangman in Top Gun Maverick. Mm-hmm. He was considered one of the breakout characters of that movie, and he's playing a very similar character here. Okay. He's less of a hot shot, uh, nobody can touch me kind of guy, but he is a, a very skilled aviator, and he is trying to get to know his wingman better. But it's the late 40s, early 50s, and racism is everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's deeply institutionalized. And although we don't see a lot of the specific horrors that Jesse Brown had to endure in order to reach his position right now, he it is discussed in a lot of detail. And he does endure racism, both subtle and blunt, from his peers, from other soldiers. Uh, and... Um, well, obviously that that's terrible. That really yeah, that really sucks. Yeah. Uh, there's an interesting bit in the movie where we find out that he he has written down every racist insult anyone has ever told him in like a diary. Mm. And when he needs extra motivation, he reads it out loud to himself in the mirror. <laughs> and that's a that's a hell of a thing. And Jonathan Majors sells the hell out of those scenes. Jonathan Majors okay. is a really great, really great actor, and this is a good showcase. Oh yeah, I, I like Jonathan Majors. A He's lot, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so the plot is he's, he's got a wingman and he wants to trust him, but he's an affluent white guy who doesn't understand his problems. And every single time he, uh, uh, Glenn Powell's character tries to be a good friend and partner, he ends up whiffing it because he doesn't know how to be a good ally. Mm. Uh, the Korean war kicks up. They are sent overseas. There are some really spectacular like aviation sequences. I think if Top Gun Maverick hadn't come out this year and kind of like stolen its thunder, stolen its thunder a little bit. It's, this is very much a situation like when Near Dark came out right after The Lost Boys. Oh uh, no! Then people didn't talk about Near Dark the for people, a while. Yeah, yeah, Near Dark is fantastic. It just they just came out the same year. Really good aviation stuff. Now they probably didn't do the whole thing like Tom Cruise did, where they took the actual planes up in the air, but. You never know. The visual effects are really, really good. The score is fantastic. The score is uh, by uh, Chanda Dancy. Just a really fantastic, classical, Hollywood, rousing score. And it really underlines a lot of the... Even some of the more basic drama is really just sold very, very well through the music. Hmm. Um, So yeah, uh, unfortunately, Jesse Brown... uh, It's a true story, but it's not super well-known. It's not going to ruin it for it. Unfortunately, you know, he didn't emerge at the end of the Korean War and, you know, everything turned out great. There's some Uh unfortunate things that happened in the movie. Uh, Whenever the movie is a rah-rah war movie, which isn't necessarily to my taste, um, it it sings. Like, it really hums along uh, the... Aviation sequences are fantastic. The score, the sound design, everything. It's really, really impressive large-scale production. When it's dealing with the human drama, whenever it's dealing with Jesse Brown and his wife, uh, who's played by Christina Jackson, it's really, really great. The problem is Glenn Powell's character, honestly. Mm. He's not very interesting. He's basically there to have for Jesse Brown to have someone to talk to. Uh-huh. For a lot of it. And we, we find out just like a little bit like, oh, my parents weren't really into aviation. They wish I could was doing, I was in the family business. That's it. That's all we get of him. Mm. Basically. That's, that's all we really know is that he wants to be Jesse Brown's friend and he doesn't know how. That's very little to build a two-hander film on. It feels like they threw all of their, their, uh, uh, 
all of their character development, all of their characterization, all of their personality mm-hmm. on Jonathan Majors and Christina Jackson, and let everyone else be either milk toast or a cliche. The racists are a cliche. The commanding officer is a cliche. Uh, he does, he always does exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. There's like no there's no stink of humanity on him. He's like only yeah. there to give the exact no. right speech. C- it just C- feels C- false, unfortunately. Uh, that, that's a pity. I mean, yeah. cliches can work. Uh, can. Yeah. If you um, if you lean into them, yeah, they can be really satisfying. Like there's there's um, you do not need to be subtle about war. Yeah, you don't even know about racism because racists aren't very subtle. No, <laughs> like a lot of the time they're not. So like you can do very. This could have been very very heavy handed and it could have worked. The problem is that so much of the movie is a character piece and one mm-hmm. of the characters can, can't bring much to it. Yeah, I think Len Powell's a very good actor. I think this there's totally would have been room here. I, I almost here's what I would have suggested. Let's take all the plot away and I want you to write like. Five hours of dialogue mm. of just those two characters in their barracks. They can't sleep and they just talk all night. The good character moment. I yeah. want all. I want to hear I, I, actors do that to get yeah. into character. I yeah. want all of that stuff in the movie. <laughs> then you add. You can add the action on top of that. Mm. But unfortunately, a lot of their conversations are built entirely around the Jesse Brown character, which is fair. He's the most interesting character. Mm. But y- you need some back and forth, and it's just forth. <laughs> and and and, some, and it doesn't the movie doesn't work as well as it could. Hmm. However, there are bits of it that are great. Jonathan Majors is great. The actual production value is fantastic. It's not a wash. I just think there's a reason why people aren't talking about this movie as a really big deal. And I think the problem is the writing of the Glenn Powell character. Okay. So it's an it's unfortunate. There's some good stuff in it. There's a really fun digression in the middle, which I don't want to ruin for people. Where they run into someone you would not expect. Okay. And there's a nice little sort of side quest. Is it Elvira? I wish. <laughs> I don't think Elvira... I don't know if Elvira was alive in 1950. But... Hello, Flyboys. It's me, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. <laughs> well, that would have been yeah. great. Uh, but, uh, no, so it's, it's not a complete watch. And again, if you like rah-rah war movies, if you like Top Gun Maverick and you want something similar... Oh. You'll get what you want out of this right. Co- Korean War version of Top Gun. Sure, why not? Like that—that's not a—it's not a bad idea, um, but it's not as strong as it could be, unfortunately. And it boils down to something kind of just a distinct failure in its DNA to make mm-hmm. the the characters who aren't played by Jonathan Majors and Christina Jackson uh, as fully fleshed out as those two characters. Okay. So uh, the balance is off, unfortunately. It, it should be that's focused a- on them, but. The other characters should feel like characters. Yeah. The other characters should feel like characters. It feel like they're part of a of a world that is entirely real, rather than they're real and everyone else around them is just trying to figuring out what to do. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's unfortunately it's not great, but it's not bad. Mm. It just doesn't entirely work. That, that's a pity. It is. Yeah. All right. Uh, tell me about Nanny. Uh, speaking of things that don't entirely work. Oh, bummer. Um, this is a, a latest horror film. It's directed, written, and directed by uh, Nikiatu Jusu. Uh, a filmmaker I'm not really familiar with. Um, hmm. uh, she previously did movies with, uh, like, Say Grace Before Drowning, Black hmm. Swan Theory, uh, Suicide by Sunlight, like, movies I'm, I don't really know. And uh, but, uh, this film won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. It did. First and, horror movie ever to do that. And uh, this is, um, it's an immigrant story. Okay. Uh, Anna Diop uh, is the main character. She is an immigrant from Senegal. Uh, she's left her young son behind. He's uh, almost seven. So she can move to New York and be a nanny for hire, like a live-in nanny. 
Mm. Or I guess not, she's not a live-in nanny, but she's a nanny for hire. And she spends a lot of time uh, looking after this young girl. Her parents are played by uh, Michelle Monaghan. I like Michelle Monaghan. Okay. And I think uh, the father's played by Morgan Spector. I'm looking over the... the... Mm, I don't know. But it's, it's about sort of her experience. And uh, boy, howdy is this film loaded with microaggressions. Mm. Sort of a little condescending things, they say. Mo- most notably... Uh, she agrees to certain amounts of money and she gets paid in cash and they kind of forget to pay her one week or they don't Mm -hmm. have quite enough money to pay one week or they let her stay an extra two hours one day and they don't bother to sort of throw that in and Mm -hmm. whenever she tries to... What's she going to do? Call the Better Business Bureau? Well, and whenever she tries to assert herself and say, you know, you have been stiffing me actually, you owe me a little bit more money, they get a little squirrely about it and they they agree to pay. It's like, oh, you know, let me talk to my wife. We'll, We'll arrange something. Uh, the dad starts to uh, flirt with her a little bit, uh, which is you know pr- pretty gross. Uh, meanwhile, she starts to you know go on dates with a young man. Uh, this, however, is a horror movie, mm. so uh, I feel like the filmmakers were almost under contract to make mm. sure we knew that every once in a while that mm-hmm. this is going to turn <coughs> into something kind of horrific. So yeah. she starts having a lot of these very strange dreams and visions throughout. And they all involve water. Uh, there's She has a nightmare where her bedroom is flooding and she freaks out and can't get away. Uh, there's another one where... Uh, She's asleep in a, in a bed, and somebody throws a wet bed sheet over her, and it kind of clings to her body, and she can't breathe. Uh, there's a, a really surreal sequence where she's swimming, and she is attacked by a monstrous mermaid. Uh, okay. Which is only in that one scene. The mermaid yeah. d- doesn't have any significance beyond that. She's just the monster grabs her and drags her. Hey, it looked good in the trailer. It, yeah, it, and, and it's pretty cool design looking monster yeah. like, mermaid. Re- re- remember the skeleton deer in the trailer for uh, uh, Get Out? No. There was a skeleton deer in the trailer for Get Out. I don't remember the skeleton deer. I remember the deer horns, like the antlers in yeah. the parlor. In no, no, there's, there's, there's like, it's in the, the, what, what, the sunken place. Mm. They're in the sunken place and you can see the skeleton deer and I go, ah. Oh, gosh. It looks great in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think it's in the movie. No, they might have cut it for the movie. <laughs> I think they cut it for the movie, but I left it in the trailer because it's a good trailer image. It makes sense. Yeah. There's an earlier scene in the movie where he like runs over a deer, uh, yeah. or they encounter a run over deer, oh, it's and like it's like now ghost, it's part of his dream state. Deer, yeah. yeah, it makes sense. You know, like it's in his subconscious. But uh, mm. you know, it, I'm, I'm just saying. Sometimes yeah. they leave things in the trailer, yeah. or they do things just for the trailer. Yeah, this is. A, uh, let me look up the uh, name of the photographer of this movie because mm. it, it's um, Rena Yang. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, just the the use of color in this movie is very interesting. Mm-hmm. A lot of really like sort of lush, stark things. Um, there's uh, been sort of a, a bit of an issue with um, cinematography in general, yeah. And in the way uh, black actors are lit compared yeah. to the way white actors are lit, and yeah, not every uh, cinematographer understands how skin tones exactly. Work. Yeah. And I feel like this this film actually, uh, yeah, with sort of a m- mostly black cast, understands how to photograph people with different skin tones. And that's actually something that I, I can't speak too eloquently about, but I know yeah. it's been a big issue yeah. in filmic cinematography just throughout film history. Uh, so this is a film that's, I think, seeking to rectify that by adding a, a lot more texture and changing sort of a, a lot of lighting dynamics to capture different people. Isn't that nice? Um, so it, it looks really wonderful. Uh, the nightmare sequence is 
rather unfortunately, you can kind of set your clock to them. It's like, it looks like this is going to be a sequence where we're going to have something scary happen to kind of remind the audience that this is a horror movie. Uh, and the movie didn't really need that stuff. It actually is a lot stronger when we just see it as this rather unfortunate story of, uh, of, of an immigrant's experience, uh, how the Senegalese woman is trying to make a living in New York City and is constantly uh, meant to feel like an outsider. And is constantly being pushed out and is constantly looked down upon by the people who are hiring her. Uh, the, even the word nanny has a bit of an, uh, 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 sort of a, an, a, cond- a condescending tone to it. Right. And, uh, and I feel like that's sort of her experience, that she's being condescended to constantly. When she is a mother and she is a working person and actually has a lot of skills, uh, it's really damning when she's uh one of the plot points in the movie is she's a very good cook and she starts feeding uh Senegalese food to the young girl that she's looking after and the young girl starts preferring that food Mm. and this upsets the parents like how dare you you're sort of like changing her palate to well Mm. we're not going to say something racist but we're about to yeah like uh, it's it's sort of that's all lingering over this uh, and I liked all of that stuff. I liked all of the the sort of uh, you know her struggles and the the sort of culture cultural clash, almost to the point where the horror stuff felt like a distraction. Like they were a little, they didn't have enough faith in the material to just let it be something that wasn't a genre film. And uh, it comes to a rather tragic conclusion that all sort of uh, we we finally learn what some of these symbols mean and what you know, what she's been having visions of. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like if they took out, like if they had maybe one dream sequence or even maybe two, that would have been fine. But I feel there's like four or five throughout the movie and mm-hmm. it's, it's just too much. Right. Uh, I was reminded of a 1966 film I saw from uh, the Criterion Collection, mm. uh, which I, I reviewed once called Black Girl. Uh, okay. By, um, which is also, it's a French Senegalese movie uh, by uh, Ousmane Sembene is the, the filmmaker's name. Uh, you can see it on the Criterion Channel, and that's another film about sort of the cri- uh, the Criterion Channel put out this uh, immigrant experience. Uh, but you know, 1966, we're in 2022, and we're telling similar stories. It's a little bit sad. Yeah. Well. Um, mm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Sounds good. Uh, so the critically acclaimed scale for those who uh, uh, maybe new, we review films on a scale of C minus to C plus. Uh, most movies are an average, you know, sort mm. of average movies. Good, some bad. You know, they're average. Average. Mm. That's a C. Nah. You've been to school. Uh, a C plus is above average. Anything that's above average, that's a movie we genuinely recommend. I guess a C plus, whether it's just pretty darn good or the best movie ever made. Mm. And anything that is below average gets a C minus, whether it's just not particularly good or the worst movie ever made. On that note, Whitney. Mm. Nanny. Nanny is a C. Okay. N- Nanny, Nanny could have been a lot stronger, but um, I appreciate what it did. I like, I liked the way it looked. Mm-hmm. Some of the scares were, you know, at least fine. There was just, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a better drama than it is a horror movie. Yeah. Uh, Devotion is a C. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of the kind of definition of a mixed bag. There's some really, really great elements in it. The the action sequences are phenomenal. The score is phenomenal. The lead performance is phenomenal. Everything else kind of lets it down a little yeah, bit. It just feels bad. like it's it feels like an A picture grafted onto a B picture. Uh-huh. And when it works, it works really, really well. And when it doesn't, it's just 
kind of non-committal and tedious. So, uh, war fans, you know, war movie fans, check that out. Jonathan Majors fans, definitely check that out. Everyone else, use your discretion. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. Uh, I mean, I don't want to give it a C minus because it's not offensive. It's just, you know, mm. I feel like it had a lot more potential. Yeah. Uh, it's just sort of an issue I have with the series in general. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's it's affable, it's watchable, it's pleasant, it's colorful, some fun music. Yeah. So it's it's a C. I kind of appreciated how lo-fi it was in some yeah. ways. How so much of it is just two actors running down a street in Hollywood. Yeah. When you have ostensibly all this money and gigantic... Uh, uh, Marvel you know, money behind but, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I kind of appreciated that it did feel like the TV special version. I appreciate that this feels like... The, the, the best part of it is how it feels like the Star Wars holiday special done kind of right. <laughs> okay. Uh, the worst part of it is it's a little insubstantial. Mm. I can live with that. It's a holiday special... I liked it fine. I'm going to give it a C plus as a holiday special. If it was like a movie, mm-hmm. I give it a C. Right. As a holiday special, I'm giving it a C plus. All right. Uh, and uh, lastly, Strange World. Uh, Strange World. Uh, I, I'm going to give it a pretty high C. I, okay. I, I feel like there, there's a, a good pulp adventure in its DNA somewhere. Mm-hmm. But it, again, it feels a little safe. Uh, but I yeah. liked the characters a lot. I liked that it yeah. was an ensemble piece. I, and I liked the look of the Strange World. I thought there was actually some yeah. good creative design in there. Uh I really like the characters. I think that's the thing I like most about the movie is that the characters are affable, interesting, sweet. Uh, The story that they're in has some really heavy ideas in it that I really, really appreciate it. Um, It's attractive. It, It, but you're right. I think in the end of the day, it feels a little. It feels weirdly weightless hmm. for me. Like it deals in big terms, deals in big family drama, but it feels like the drama is a weirdly muted for how gigantic yeah. the rest of it is. So even though it's a very, very likable picture, it never becomes a great one. Yeah. So I'm going to give it a very, a very solid C. Okay. I think if you're, I think kids who are into sci-fi and who might want to see more of their generation's attitude uh, towards the world reflected in science fiction. Uh, I think they're really going to dig this, and I think uh, some other people might reject it because it doesn't recognize what they're familiar with. Mm. It doesn't um, recognize. It doesn't doesn't adhere to what they're familiar with. Anyway, so that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us. We think you're all very cool. Oh, yes. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, or anything at all, really, you can always email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Send us an actual physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And uh, uh, if you want to listen to our show without any commercials, you can do that. Mm. Go over to patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork. For only $1 a month, you get the show without commercials. New ones. Mm. Uh, And uh, uh, we also have a ton of exclusive shows over there, including shows about the Step Up franchise, Star Trek, the Academy Awards. Uh, We do commentary tracks. We do Discord hangouts with our various uh, patrons. It's a lot of fun over there. Thank you, everybody, who signed up. Without you, our show couldn't exist. That's 100% true. So thank you for that. Um, And uh, we are on Twitter we are at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we're 
moving into other yeah. uh, social media. Things are getting increasingly well, yeah. dodgy on Twitter. So we also have set up. Uh, I'm on Hive at William Bibiani. I'm also on Hive. I'm also at Whitney Seibold over there. And uh, yeah, that's a whole thing. Thank you, everybody. You're you're cool. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Never forget, everyone's a critic. Okay. I just kind of forgot how to end a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what?